Okay, without further ado, we're going to take a pause from our Spotlight series on the character of God so that John can have free reign to preach as he wishes, which doesn't mean that he's not going to talk about the character of God, I'm sure that he is, um, but he's got free reign to come and bless us as God would have him do. So, John, welcome. As always, it's a joy to be amongst you. Just to say, I actually don't believe you actually meet in the auditorium. I've been here three times in the last year, and every time I've preached in this room. But I trust Phil's a trustworthy individual, so, but I'm, I've got growing suspicions. If the next time you're still here, I think that will be confirmation. Anyway, so I'm John. I, as Philip mentioned, I used to be one of the pastors here. Moved out July 2013 to Istanbul with my family, uh, planting a church in a place called Uskadar in a fantastic part of Istanbul. It's quite a cons- conservative place. It's a district with 640,000 people in it. Or was it 540? 540, 640, I can't quite remember. But when we planted the church there two years ago, two and a half years ago, there were no other Protestant Bible-believing evangelical churches there. So that's a borough four times the uh, size of Kingston. So you get a sense of the need for the gospel to go forth in Turkey. To put another perspective out there, if you got a representative sample of people from Turkey, plonked them in Wembley Stadium so it was packed to 90,000 capacity, you would expect to find about eight or nine believers in that crowd. There's a desperate need for people to hear about Jesus because he is the savior of the world. So that's why we went out there. So we went out there with a team of 10 adults. We did two years language learning, literally just learning language, trying to learn as a culture because we came as learners, not saying we had all the answers and we needed to learn how to communicate in the culture. And then uh, with much incompetence, we started planting a church. And God has been very gracious to us, very kind to us, and we're seeing God do some stuff amongst us. So I'll certainly share lots more about that tonight. Uh, Currently, we're gathering 30, 35 on a Sunday. About 15 Turks are amongst us, 15 foreigners, and then a few visitors here and there. But we're in a season where God's being very gracious. So uh, we've baptized three people in the last couple of months. So we were really excited about that. It feels like new life. It feels like God's doing something. In fact, at one of the baptisms, I'll tell you one of the stories, one of the baptisms, this person who is coming towards faith, and I wasn't quite sure. I was thinking, has he put his faith in Jesus yet, or has he not put his faith in Jesus? I wasn't quite sure. Anyway, he was uh, watching these baptisms took place, and after I said, look, let's all pray for these people. Let's all raise a loud voice and together pray. And he said to me afterwards, it was very strange. So I started to pray for these people. And as I started praying for them, I started speaking in a language I didn't know. Uh, and so I was there going, is this person a Christian? Is he not a Christian? And then you go, I think probably he's a Christian because he's received the gift of tongues. And actually, when you read Acts 10 and Cornelius, actually a very similar thing took place, isn't it? They were listening to Peter's preach, and then suddenly the Spirit of God came upon them, uh, and they started speaking tongues. So God's at work. God loves people of Istanbul as he loves the people of Kingston. Okay, let me just, there might be a picture of my family. My better, so there's my wife, she's just a hero. Uh, Samuel, our oldest son there playing, what, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, there's another name, Floor, Floorball, it's called Floorball, where we live. Uh, then there's Benjamin, who's nine, who's a Fenerbahce fan, for those who like football. Thomas, who's seven, who's a Besiktas fan. Uh, and Grace, who's 
who's, uh, she's not a fan, actually. She just likes dolls and things. Uh, but she is absolutely lovely. She's our very Turkish child. Uh, so yeah, so let me just flag something up to you. Uh, here's a book my good friend Andy wrote to you. I think there might be a picture on the screen. Oh, there's some people from our church. I'll talk about them tonight. Uh, here's, can you go to the next slide? This is a book called Global Humility, written by my friend Andy McCulloch. If you want to understand what we've been trying to do for the last five years in Turkey, can I encourage you to get this book? If you've got a stirring or a hint of what's global mission about uh, and why would we want to go to the ends of the earth, this book's really helpful. It's endorsed by somebody called Terry Virgo, somebody called Dave Devonish. Uh, it's a great book. I've actually got 15 copies with me. I will sell them for £10 each. I do make no profit. So if you do want to get one from, from me at the end, they're at the back table. So put £10 in, get one. Honestly, it's a brilliant book. They've even got some examples of how not to do church planting, and they've got no names mentioned. But when I read the book, I thought, that sounds remarkably similar to a person I know. <laughs> okay. Can we stand up? I just want to pray for us. Just open up your hands. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that your word is living and active. We want to thank you that you love us. We want to thank you that you so much love the world that you came into this world to rescue a people. And Lord Jesus, we want to open up our hearts to you. We say, speak to us, work in our hearts, open up our eyes as we see your word. Lord, I want to pray, would this go beyond just touching our heads? I want to pray, would our hearts be impacted? Jesus, would you walk amongst us just as you walked on this earth 2,000 years ago? Would you walk amongst us by your Holy Spirit and touch our hearts? Lord Jesus, we look to you as our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Do take a seat. So I'm going to be reading today from Luke's Gospel. If you've got a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. I've entitled this sermon, The Tale of Two Healings. Uh, Luke 8, starting at verse 40 to verse 56. But first of all, let me just give you a backdrop. So Luke's Gospel was written by Luke the doctor to his friend Theophilus. Theophilus, my word, I can't speak English nowadays. Uh, (laughs) Luke was not one of the 12 disciples, but drew his account from the disciples. So it's this kind of, he drew his material from eyewitnesses to write a reliable account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he writes with an eye for detail, he writes like a historian, and he writes an orderly account. And in Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel actually has a real priority of often focusing on the marginalized, on the poor, and shows how when Jesus proclaims the Gospel and the Kingdom of God, it particularly impacts those who are marginalized, those who are excluded, those who are left behind by society, and then God's grace comes and touches them. And as Jesus bursts onto the scene and his public ministry starts, Jesus, if you like, proclaims his manifesto. And Luke records this in his gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 4, it says this. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. It says, And Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of God is upon me, 
because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to blind up the captives. Sorry, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendants and sat down. And the eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, these words, they're about me. I'm the one who sets the captives free. I'm the one to recover sight for the blind. I'm the one to release and proclaim good news to the poor. And as we will see today in this preach, we will, uh, as I'm talking, we will see an example of Jesus doing that, of Jesus' power to heal and to restore. We will see how the gospel, God's gospel, raises up the broken and honors them and lifts them up and gives them dignity. But before we zoom into that kind of story, I think it would be helpful for us to zoom out to see the big picture. Actually, in the Middle East, and the Bible was written in the Middle East, in the Middle East, context and backstories are really important. People are interested in connections and history and how everything's connected up together. They don't just focus on isolated events. So, for example, one of my friends is working in Lebanon at the moment, and he was doing a translation of the Bible, uh, where in particular an audio version, and they did the recording, and then they got some unbelievers in to listen to it, and they give their feedback on it. And what was fascinating was these people in this focus group came back, and they said, look, we think it's great, but the trouble is, these people, we don't know whether to trust them or what to think about them, because we don't know about their families. So we just read about it and read about them and go, okay, it just mentions them, but we don't think about the backstory of them. Well, for them, the interest was, well, what's the story of how they've got to where they are? So backstories are really important. Big picture is really important, the connections between things. So let me give the big picture to the small story we'll share today. Uh, sorry, let me find my correct page. So... The big picture is this. In the beginning, God made the world. He made it, and it was perfect. There were no barriers between humans and God. There was no barriers between Adam and Eve. They walked with God. They worked. They ruled creation. And they were God's image bearers. They were to be those who reflected his beauty and love in the world. And that's the setup. That's what the beginning was like. Mankind in harmony with God, creation, perfect. And then, mankind, humankind, decided to rebel against God. God gave one command, don't eat from this tree. And Adam and Eve thought, you know what, we're going to eat from this tree, because if we do, we become like God, was their thinking. So they chose to rebel against God, the one who'd given them life, and ate from this tree. And it was a dreadful consequence. You see, at the beginning, here's my bag of goodies. Oh, at the beginning, oh, I've already managed to break the thing. That doesn't work so well. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we we were called to reflect the glory of God, be this perfect mirror image of him. So when people looked at humans as God's image bearers, they would see God. And then when sin came into the world, that all changed. It was as that mirror was smashed to pieces. And what happens is you've still got a mirror. There's some of it 
that ref you can still see fragments of what it's meant to be, can't you? But it's marred, it's broken, it doesn't reflect what it's designed to reflect. And the Bible says that's what happened with human beings. Human beings were designed to be those who reflected gl God's glory. And yes, that's still there. So we can still see the fingerprints of God on people, but it's marred, it's distorted, it's been corrupted. And the consequences of that, according to the Bible, are threefold. Firstly, there ends up being a separation between a vertical problem, which is there's a breakdown of relationship between God and man. Where in the past, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, they would talk to him and had relationship with him. The consequence is there's a breakdown vertically. That relationship was broken. Secondly, there's a horizontal problem, which is there's now breakdown between man and man, between human and human, that suddenly people don't live in peace with each other. And you see that all the time, whether on a global scale, whether on a small scale, in terms of the breakdown of our relationships with each other. Thirdly, there's a creational problem, which is the fact that sin, when it entered the world, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel from God, had an impact on the world. Actually, it affected and tarnished the world. And the Bible would teach that when sin entered the world, it resulted in sickness. It resulted in death. It resulted in all kinds of, in a sense, the mess that sometimes we see in the world, like natural disasters, would be a consequence of sin entering the world. And that's the big story. God created mankind to be with him. Mankind turned away and sin entered the world. Now, sin, in terms of a definition of sin, on the one hand, sin is a human choice, such as Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, and mankind is guilty. Yeah, sin's a human choice, mankind's guilty, so you read Romans chapter 3, and Paul says, for all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And normally, probably on Sundays, when you explain what sin is, you'll say it's about rebellion from God, it's about choosing to do what God said not to, and all humans have done that, and that's true. But on the other hand, sin is a despot, sin is a cruel leader or cruel ruler, and people are victims. And that's another definition of sin. So, for example, 9% of the world's population live in chronic malnutrition, uh, even though there's enough food in the world to go around. Or the fact there are over 27 million people uh, who live in modern-day slavery. Or the fact that one father gets cancer and dies at a young age, and the mum's left alone, while another father lives to a healthy age. And what... The and what and that's to do with the problem in the world. That's not because they've been more sinful than anyone else. It's because we're living in a fallen world, a messed up world that's been tarnished by sin, by people uh, that's been influenced, that's been marred. And it's in this context of a world that's broken and marred and not quite as it should be, at all that Jesus comes in to bring hope and bring life and bring restoration. And it's in this context of this bigger story that we find Jesus' encounter, which we're going to read today. As we approach uh, this story in Luke chapter 7, we get a summary of what's happening to date. So John the Baptist has been thrown into prison. John the Baptist was the same middle name as Winnie the Pooh. John the Baptist has been thrown into prison... Uh, 
uh, and he's having a few doubts about who Jesus is. So he, so, he, so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one? Are you the one we should be expecting or is there someone else? And Jesus is healing the sick and setting people free. And Jesus responds by saying this, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That's what Jesus was doing, healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, setting people free. So let's come to the actual story we're looking at. So that's a big macro picture. Now we zoom in in one account of Jesus encountering people. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. They were, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was that who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So you've got to see Jesus come back from the, uh, crossed over on a boat, come to this town, it's heaving. Now in the Middle East, we're used to crowds. That's a normal kind of thing. One of the names for public transport is called a dolmush, which literally means stuffed. Uh, we, do an we do an English for Life group at church, uh, so we do an English conversation group, and it was really fascinating. A couple of weeks ago, there was a group. There weren't that many people that came, but what happened was there were about 12 or 13 chairs set out. I think five Turks came. They all sat next to each other, and we thought, wow, that's so different to the UK. If there'd been that in that instance, you'd have had one person sitting, then a gap of a chair, followed by another one, so we've got our personal space. Oh, no, not the Turks. They were all together going, we're going to be close, even though there's all this space. <laughs> so this is crowded scene. It's this hubbub. It's a bit like walking into uh, one of the markets in Istanbul. And Jesus is walking there, and up to him comes Jairus 
the leader of the synagogue, a person of standing. Now, by this stage in the story of Luke's gospel, the religious leaders are starting to be uh, to oppose Jesus. He's starting to say things that threaten their way of life. So, but Jairus, desperate because his daughter is ill, at the point of death, it says, Jairus, desperate because of that, in a sense, throws away potentially his reputation by going up to Jesus and begging, please come, come heal my daughter. Because he'd heard that Jesus did these things, but it was potentially going to cost him huge standing in the community. You get that, because uh, he was challenging a whole way of life. But he humbled himself in front of the, in front of the religious community, potentially lost his standing. He knew his only hope was Jesus. So he pushes through the crowd and pleads with Jesus. So you've got this situation of a desperate father, his, son about, his daughter about to die, pleading with Jesus, trying his reputation, and begging. And that's when we're introduced to the second woman. Now, whereas Jairus normally held his head up high, he was a man of standing in the community. This woman hid from the crowds. She didn't want to be identified. She wasn't used even to being in crowds. In fact, because of her medical condition, she shouldn't have even been there. She was seen as perpetually unclean due to her sickness. This is what David Hewitt writes about this woman in his commentary on Mark's Gospel. Her condition would have made her an unwanted outcast. Under the regulations of Leviticus 15, she would not have been allowed to enter the, attend synagogue services or mix with others. Anyone who touched her would have been unclean also. She, would not have been amongst the, she should not have been amongst the crowd that day. Because she's been ill for 12 years, she's desperate. And like Jairus... She knows her only hope is Jesus. This one that she's heard does dramatic healings. And she humbles herself and, in a sense, kicking her back against how she is feeling in terms of entering into a crowded place where she knows she doesn't belong there, she pushes through. You see, for her, this sickness had been chronic. It had lasted. It's interesting. The the girl, Jairus' daughter, was 12 years old. Actually, this lady had been sick for 12 years. So the entire life of Jairus' daughter, this woman had been an outcast, a social pariah, uh, separated from society, seen as unclean. Secondly, this sickness had cost her everything. It said she spent all her money on doctors. And it's fascinating. Luke the doctor, you almost imagine writing this with a slightly wry smile, recognizing, okay... Medicine's okay, but actually it can't sometimes do it deliver. But it cost her everything, and still she'd have got no better. So now she was an outcast and broke. Thirdly, she had been separated from society and separate from, separated from even being able to worship in the community. Fourthly, she was identified as dirty. She was identified as unclean. I want you just to imagine how that lady felt. Just the emotions that lady would have felt as she tried to push through that crowd that day. 
just her thinking, you know what, if they recognize who I am, there'd be further anger, there'd be further disgrace, there'd be further shame. You know what, her illness was paralyzing. But probably more than the sickness, the thing that was paralyzing for this lady was the shame that she carried. The knowing that she was an unwelcome outsider, the knowing that she couldn't never fit in society. The lady was a victim of her sickness. Remember what I said earlier? Sin, one, sin is, a, is a cruel master and humans are victims. And this lady, because of her sickness, is separated from society, an outcast, a social pariah. And in a shame on a culture, which the Middle East is, and this book was written in the Middle East, in Israel, in a shame on a culture, the power of shame is crippling. The question of honor and shame shapes everything in, in terms of how people behave, what people do. So I was with my language helper the other day, chatting, and I was doing a lesson where we, I wanted to spend time talking about what are the different shades of shame or the different words we use for shame in Turkish. Because in English, we don't really have many words. In Turkey, there are a number. Your honor is broken, your pride is broken, your integrity is dirtied, your record is sullied, would be some of the kind of rough approximations uh, of how Turkish, Turks would describe it. Uh, and the, the, the interesting thing about shame is shame just isn't about a cognition, it's about a feeling. You feel shame. So three years ago, I managed to do a really stupid maneuver in my car, and I managed to get it. So my car was trapped uh, in between the pavement and the road. And, so it was, and I couldn't move it, and I had to call a mechanic to come and help me get, get the car off the road. But unfortunately, at that exact moment, a big, big rainstorm started coming. So there was loads of water running down the road. And it was exactly the same time that schools were coming out in Turkey, which meant people with their children had to walk from the pavement out into the road, round my car, to then get back on. And there were massive puddles, and people were walking through, getting slightly drenched in these puddles because I'd parked my car in this bad place. Anyway, I stood by my car for about half an hour. I stood by my car, and what happened, people would come by, and I'd say, I'm so sorry, I can't move my car. And they kept on saying, and what that means is, You've done a shameful thing. You've done a shameful thing. I'd never been told in my entire life I'd done anything particularly shameful by people. But in the space of a half hour, I was told by, I reckon, at least 10 people I'd been publicly shamed by them, saying, you've done a shameful thing. In the end, it was too much, so I just abandoned my car <laughs> because of the power of shame. I suddenly realized shame isn't just a cognitive thing. It's about a feeling where you feel like I don't belong. And I ended up sitting in a cafe just sort of watching till this, because I couldn't, I couldn't cope with this continuous you've done a shameful thing. But that's a picture, to some extent, of what people live like with shame and a shame on a culture. If people are outsiders, people are talking about you, this, it's not just an, it's, not, it's a feeling that I don't belong, I'm not welcomed. And this lady had been living with this for 12 years. This is what... Uh, it's a book called 3D Gospel. This is how it describes shame. 
and honor. Honor is a person's social worth, one's value in the eyes of the community. Honor is when other people think well of you, resulting in a harmonious social bonds in the community. Honor comes from relationships. Shame, on the other hand, is a negative public rating. And I certainly felt that that day. I had a negative public rating. It's a negative public rating. The community thinks lowly of you. You're disconnected from the group. For example, one Thai word for shaming means to rip someone's face off, such that they appear ugly before others. Shame produces feelings of humiliation, disapproval, abandonment. Shame means inadequacy of the entire person. Hear that, inadequacy of the entire person. While guilt says, I made a mistake, shame says, I am a mistake. Since the problem is the actual person, the shamed individual is banished from the group. To avoid such rejection and isolation, people mask their shame from others. And it's a profound definition. I think in the Middle East and in lots of shame cult honor cultures of the world, that would be the predominant way people navigate and think about the world in terms of a shame honor kind of lens. Now, many of you, it's important this just isn't a story that stays out there. Many of you have known shame for things that you've done. In fact, I'm guessing many of you have known shames for things that have been done to you. They, in a sense, haven't been your fault, but you've been part of. It's not been your fault, but nonetheless, you feel shame. You know what it is to feel dirty. You know what it is to try and cover your shame for fear that if people find out the truth about you, you'll be rejected. You know what it is to wear a mask for the fear that you'll be rejected. You know what it is to feel an outcast, to feel like you don't quite belong and you never will belong to feel that there is something wrong about you, to feel like people are whispering about what you did or who you are. And if that's how some of you have felt, you have entered into something of the story of this lady who's been an outsider for 12 years. If you know what that's like, in a sense, you can enter in and live in these ladies' shoes for the next few minutes. And there's hope. That's the important thing, there's hope. She pushed through the crowd to Jesus. And it says in Mark's gospel, she pushed through the crowd to Jesus saying, if I can just touch his garment, then I'll be healed. Ben Witherington writes this about this lady. This woman has taken a risk in touching Jesus, as she might have been condemned or further ostracized for daring to be in a crowd full of richly clean, Never mind, touch a holy man. Or the richly clean, pardon. She doesn't know how Jesus will respond to her. Like Jairus, who takes the risk of losing faith, faith in the community, she crosses that invisible boundary line. She walks into the crowd, not allowing her feelings of non-belonging and fears from preventing her to get to Jesus. And I think it's really important. I think often to approach Jesus, there's this sense of people need to push beyond how they're feeling about themselves. Often you can feel like this woman saying, I don't belong. And maybe you even sometimes have those feelings that says, you know what, Jesus, I don't know whether he would accept me. Maybe I'm an outsider. And actually sometimes you've got to push beyond those because yes, he does. Well, we see in this story, he does. 
And in the midst of the crowd, she touches Jesus. And it says she's immediately healed. Now, Jesus knows something's happened to him. So he says, who touched me? Now, in a sense, the disciples respond with a common sense answer. Look, you're in a crowd. Everyone's touching you. Of course someone's touched you. But he goes, no, no, I know power's come out from me. And I've often wondered, what, why? Why, why did Jesus almost call her out? Why did Jesus say, hey, come on, stand up? Who did it? I mean, it's, it's, it strikes me it's the, least she, it's the last thing she wanted, isn't it? She came there hidden, secretly walking into the crowd, touched him, and then she wanted to withdraw back. But Jesus is calling her out. And the question is, why? Why would he have done that? And I think the answer is this. This woman for years had been an outcast. This woman for years had been a social pariah, been ignored, avoided, unwelcome. She had been publicly shamed for as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. Then Jesus in front of the crowd is publicly honoring her. He's publicly honoring her. She's been ignored for 12 years. Then Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And in a sense, he's saying, look, in front of me, you're fine. Almost restoring her into the group setting. And it's a beautiful thing. I expect for a 12-year period, she hadn't heard many tender words spoken to her. She wouldn't have heard people saying, daughter, or go in peace. And then Jesus says these words, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And you know what? Some of you today need to know that's what Jesus wants to say to you. He wants to say to you, daughter, son. And some of you haven't heard those words said tenderly in years. Probably. But Jesus responds to his daughter, son. And some of you need to hear that today, that the, that the heartbeat of Jesus towards you is calling you his son, calling you his daughter, expressing love, raising you up. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing how this person comes feeling dirty, excluded, unwelcomed. And some of you feel dirty. Some of you feel excluded. And what would Jesus say to you? Well, you've got to come to him. But he would say, daughter, son. And if you've come in faith, he will restore you. That's the wonder of the gospel. Jesus breaks through years of isolation. So let's continue with the story. So while Jesus is speaking, news comes uh, that Jairus' daughter has actually died. And so Jesus responds saying, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. You see, just as this woman's faith, believing that Jesus would make a difference, uh, made her well, actually so Jairus' believing would make Jairus' daughter well. So they make the short walk to the house. It's not a big town. They make the short walk to the house. Now, there are professional mourners there, mourning uh, that this daughter's died. And Jesus says, look, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. 
Often that's a response to Jesus, to laugh at what he says. But Jesus goes into the room uh, just with his three disciples and the mum and the dad, gets everyone else out, and says, child, rise. And the child rises, and Jesus gives order to get her some food. And then he says, interestingly, wherever the other woman had said, called her out in front of the crowd to say, what's happened to you? And she explains her story. In this instance, he says, don't say a word. It's interesting. And I won't go into, I'm not 100% sure why, what the difference in the context is. Obviously, sometimes Jesus, he, Jesus didn't reveal, didn't want people following him for the wrong reasons. But it's interesting. I think in the other instance, there was a definite case of almost honoring her in the community. Maybe it was just the fact that this young girl didn't need, in a sense, all the people clamoring around her to ask her story. But it's fascinating in terms of the difference. But what's interesting is you've got these two stories. On the one hand, you've got the woman who reaches out and touches Jesus. In the other instance, Jesus reaches out and touches the girl. Both result in healing. Tom Wright writes this about it. Of course, touching was itself very important in both cases. In the world before modern hygiene, soap, as we know, wasn't invented until the Middle Ages. Uh, purity taboos were vital simply to maintain public health. The Jewish scriptures and subsequent traditions had, had codified and elaborated them into almost an art form. And two of the most obvious sources of pollution were corpses and women with internal bleeding. In other words, a first century reader coming upon this double story would know very well that Jesus was apparently incurring double pollution. In the first case, he couldn't help it. The woman came and touched him without his knowing either that she was doing it or what she was suffering from. But officially, he had become unclean nonetheless. And that's interesting. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Jesus redefines uncleanliness, doesn't he? You don't get unclean by the things you touch or the things you eat. Actually, uncleanliness flows from the heart. And Jesus, in a sense, by doing this, is partly pointing out, actually, uncleanliness is not about what you eat and what you, uh, what you touch. But I think also there's just another profoundly important picture in this story. Jesus was, according to the culture, polluted by the woman's touch. By touching the corpse, Jesus was polluted. As he touched their uncleanliness, as he absorbed their dirtiness, they were healed, they were restored, they were lifted up. And that's a picture of the cross. That points to Jesus' ultimate act of restoration. Dear friends, one aspect of the gospel is this. Jesus came into the world and he died on the cross, the pure one. And when he died on the cross, he absorbed our sins. When he died on the cross, he carried our dirtiness. What's it saying in 2 Corinthians? It says, for he who knew no sin became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, the, our dirtiness, our pollution, our uncleanness was poured on him and he carried it on the cross. Just as when these people touched Jesus, he became dirty for them and they were clean. 
He absorbed it. He carried this dirtiness. And if we come to him in faith, believing in him, we can be healed. We can be restored. Our shame can be lifted from our shoulders because he carries it. Our dirtiness is cleansed and washed away. And we can hear the voice of Jesus just as he spoke to this lady, son, daughter. Moreover, uh, we know that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted because like the girl who was raised from the dead, three days after Jesus had been crucified from the dead, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, confirming that his sacrifice was acceptable and showing that he had conquered the greatest enemies of death, sin, and brokenness. See, talking big picture, it starts in the garden with mankind eating fruit they shouldn't have been eating, rebelling against God and sin entering in the world. It ends with a feast that God prepares and calls people and invites people to do who would believe in him. And we read in Revelation 21 these words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, let me just make a point here, the picture of heaven, Revelation 7, is people from every tribe, every tongue, every people group, all nations gathering, who have put their, and the criteria is this, have they put their faith in Jesus? So this is a global message. This is a big community, an international community gathering for a feast. And this is what God writes about this community. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, just as when God originally walked with man in the garden, man and Adam and Eve in the garden. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. One day there will be a restored creation. One day there will be no more sickness. One day the world will be as it should. And for those who have put their faith in Jesus, they can be with God forever, walking alongside him, celebrating with him. Now let me just land this message for you. I realize I just told a story, really. I haven't really made that many points. But let me just land this message for you. Uh, What lessons can we learn? From the woman and Jairus, we can learn that hopelessness and desperation can force us and be the anvil that causes us to turn to Jesus. Asbury, desperation is a dreadful thing in some ways, but it's a wonderful thing in terms of it can force you to push through the crowds to seek Jesus in a way that you might not have done beforehand. Secondly, faith is active, it has legs. So this Jairus came to Jesus, he sought him out. This lady came from her place of isolation and approached Jesus. Faith is active. If you want, you, can, you choose to make steps towards Jesus. Thirdly, faith takes risks. For Jairus and this woman, the risks were huge. There was lots to lose if Jesus rejected them, but they stepped out the boat. In terms of what can we learn about Jesus, the gospel is for all. So you've got Jairus, a high-standing member of the community. You've got this woman who's an outcast. Jesus heals both Jairus' daughter, heals this woman. And actually, as we read the previous story, Jesus heals this foreigner who's uh, out of his mind. So Jesus' gospel is for all. Secondly, in the midst of the crowd, Jesus looks at individuals. And he touches individuals. 
He's got his eye on you. Thirdly, Jesus heals the sick, and he still does. Fourthly, Jesus is the one who can take our shame. He lifts us up, and he restores us. And those who come to him, he will not turn away. There's that amazing verse in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Just finish with the shortest story, so I've run out of time. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I've got a lady from my church called Nergis. She comes from Uzbekistan. She's had a tough life. So she had an abusive marriage. Then her husband, uh, her, her husband died. She moved to Turkey. To be honest, Uzbeks in Turkey would be second-class citizens. So she's not really honoured in the culture. And then a year and a half ago, she got saved, started coming along to us. And the Gospels dignified her. The Gospels lifted her up. She's found grace. Where she was an outcast, where she didn't belong, she suddenly found God's calling her daughter. It's showing her love. And actually, the church community also have shown her a love in a way that society hasn't, in the way that her husband never did when he should have done. Friends, that's what the church should do. The gospel glorifies because Christ lifts up those who are broken because he himself became broken so that we could be raised up. But actually, the church community is one that expresses the love of God and grace. And just as that's Nergis' story, actually that can be the story of countless people here.